That was tough, actually. It was really uh, tough. We, we, we were the first crew to go in film to go into um, New Orleans after Katrina. And so it was a quite a, a lawless um, in, in environment. And it was quite a scary place. There were six shootings, I think, in the first few days that we were there. And it was quite, my, obviously my children were with me and it was, it was quite unsettling, and Fincher does, you know, oh he of the 197 takes, <laughs> you know, you and there was a lot of prosthetics. Um, so often you'd start at four in the morning, and you think, okay, well, a regular human being would have you finishing at six or seven at night, but you'd find yourself there some nights at eleven, still working. Um, you know, you felt like, you know, the witch of the west, you know, melting, but you kept shooting. Um, but it was astonishing because it was he is meticulous but also so um engaged as a as a director and and he knew it was the beginning of um you know that that digital process and it was a one of the strongest memories i have is getting used to it's how i'm going to sound really date myself now but getting used to the the different rhythm that you one has when one works with film literal film in the camera where you'll do one, maybe two takes, and you'll stop, you'll decompress, you'll reload, you'll probably chat to the focus puller, you'll have a chat to the director, you'll dec and then you wind up again and do another take. Whereas this, we would just go and go and go and go and go. everyone welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by so we are still working our way through the career of david fincher and today mike we are taking a look at um i guess the movie that's closest to oscar bait from david fincher uh, which is the curious case of benjamin button uh, so this is a movie i don't think that i've watched since it came out I feel like I just watched it once and I didn't, I wasn't in the camp where I was like, oh, this movie sucks. Ugh, it's Oscar bait. I hate this because there was a lot of that kind of backlash to this. Um, but it also wasn't a movie that I was like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to watch that again. I got to check that out. And as I was watching it, like, I think I kind of figured out way. I, I don't think it's that kind of movie that you would just like watch and rewatch all the time because it's essentially it's a movie about regret essentially and how sometimes things don't work out and life is hard and sometimes you have to meet in the middle and then it goes away and then it comes back uh, so it's not exactly like it's not fight club it's not even panic room it's not like a fun thriller there's a there's a lot of kind of more depth here than i think in in some of those other other films and without kind of the laugh out loud funny moments um so is this a movie that you've gone back to or are you also in that camp where you just kind of watched it and set it aside i mean as you could say with anything um, i watched this when i was much younger because this film is mm. what 12 years old at this point 12 and change yeah 2009 um, right i was thinking 2008 maybe i have the year wrong yeah i'm right oh, 2008 2009 2008. yeah uh you know the red states, the flyover states. I'm sure when it came our way during the Oscar run. <laughs> I mean, it's was, was trying to yeah. help you out, man. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I think I had a that looked cool. Uh, there were moments I liked about it, but I, I would not say that I was blown away. And I, I didn't have a negative reaction like 
uh, my man Davey Fincher has turned on me because there was where was the the hyper masculinity and the violence, even though you do have men at war in, in this film. So, and you do have very masculine, uh, tattooed uh, artists uh, with the tugboat captain here. Guy rules. Um, I, I guess yeah. This this has the um, the trappings of Oscar bait. Oscar bait as we used to know it. Um, now. Um, I need to watch, I guess, how afraid it is, uh, but the um, the more diverse, I guess, academy, that, that narrative that's being pushed, which I don't even know if that's being pushed in times of COVID uh, at all, but I think that there's an attempt to skew younger and different with new faces, uh, where I think what most people want, as far as younger film fans, uh, is for like a best picture, best actor uh, winning performance to be... Uh, like an arrival of a new voice in some way, which is is fine. If you're you're into movies and you're looking to award seasons to sort of boost uh, someone else to lift them up to where they get uh, even more work, uh, that's, that's great. But yeah, this is the classic version where it's like Brad Pitt, Kate Blanchett, three hours long, a love story that, you know, goes across uh, time, uh, not time and space like uh, The Fountain, which was far too weird with the uh, bald-headed Hugh Jackman <laughs> floating in space. Um, but you wanted it to be weirder, as I recall. I did. I, I was definitely into uh, the uh, meditation element floating through literal space into oblivion. That was that was a romance right there to me. Just just bald Huey in a tree. That's that's all I need. Uh, where's the fucking here? Um, I you know I think I even since then that it's like well maybe this just wasn't for me, which is not great podcast material. I will say, as a much older person, uh, it was a little bit striking uh, how much <laughs> I could feel it getting closer to like, eh, this is kind of becoming something for mm-hmm. me because you, you have more of your own narrative to look back on. You have, as you're saying, more of that regret and those uh, missed opportunities. You have that the, the one sequence uh, that I seem to remember being applauded and they're like, why couldn't the rest of them have been like this? They sort of run little run. Um, Kate Blanchett, the accident, where it's like if one of any of these number of sort of trivial things that the rest of the participants in this one event will never remember, uh, forgetting their coat and missing that cab, that sort of thing, how it dramatically changes the course of not only one person, but the people in her life as well. Um, it's funny to me that I remember people enjoying that, but not enjoying the rest of the film as much. I'm like, but that's that is the whole movie. That's, that's like, that's what it's encapsulated in that one sequence, which may be more fun and stylish, but the rest of it is about getting old. And I don't know if people like <laughs> seeing that. And it, it takes a certain point in your life. Maybe you have to be an old white Academy voter where you want to look back and be like, I once was Brad Pitt, <laughs> but not anymore. <laughs> and if you're young, you're thinking I'm never going to fucking be Brad Pitt. So fuck him, <laughs> fuck him and his troubles. <laughs> So I think this is, to me, like one of the most interesting Brad Pitt performances on record because it is so quiet. Um, and it is it's it's like this three hour exercise in active listening because he's kind of taking everything in because he is because of how this character was born and everything he's going through. He is naturally an outsider in every sense of the word, like he's never going to have a normal life. He's never going to exist in the way that every other person who crosses his path does. So he plays it like, and very sweetly, like kind of constantly just interested 
in everything that's going on in whoever's life, whether it's, you know, the love of his life or whether it's Tilda Swinton's character or whether it's the captain of the tugboat. Like, he's just like he's there for it. And it's such a strange role for such a gigantic movie star to just be quiet and to not kind of hog the screen, even though he's his character is he's the only one who's there in every scene. And yet he very interestingly like makes he seems like he makes a specific choice to just take a back seat and let everyone else shine. Which is so interesting to me, and I and even through the makeup, you can see it, and through the special effects and all that stuff, like it's a tremendous performance from Brad, Brad Pitt. And even though I think he got nominated for an Oscar for this, looking back now, it feels like an underrated performance because nobody really talks about this when you talk about Brad Pitt's career. Like this is not one that comes up, and I really think it should. I think that's he seems to like those roles, um, much like. Uh, you know, Ryan Gosling is kind of accused of he enjoys being silent, mm. but he's he has more of a nervous energy that sort of draws your attention to him, even when he's being quiet. And um, I'm not here to say that maybe Brad Pitt just has more confidence in his looks than Ryan Gosling, because that's a weird thing to say. That's like Ryan Gosling <laughs> may have some hang ups about his personal appearance that makes no sense to the rest of us. But uh, as far as being on screen and sharing a space, I don't think Brad Pitt has ever really cared that much. And maybe that comes with being fucking Brad Pitt where it's like, well, people are going to look at me anyway. Uh, I don't need to draw their attention. Mm -hmm. I can just, you know, be a partner in a scene uh, here. And I think Kate Blanchett's sort of an interesting partner because she tends to my liking tends to go the other way. She tends to go big in her, her roles. So Mm -hmm. um, she won for blue Jasmine. Correct. I think that's her best actress. Yep. Win. And did she also yep. win for the Aviator? Yes, she did for Best not Supporting. Yeah. Subtle mm-hmm. roles. Maybe, I mean, maybe. No, maybe no, no, there's no. Some, I'm not saying that anyone who goes big or is playing like a broad character is not making subtle choices, but those characters right. are. <laughs> they're going to announce themselves. They're screen. blunt. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it's interesting because she is kind of playing that as well. You know, she's the one that does most of the talking. She's the. She's the force in their relationship. Like the the decisions she makes uh-huh. will move both of them one way or the other, whether they're together or not, which is cool that it's coming from, you know, based on this time period, such a, a strong progressive woman that is making the decision to say, um, I don't need to fuck Brad Pitt in my twenties because he's in his fifties. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to let that <laughs> stay in the oven a little bit longer. <laughs> that simmer. <laughs> I'll come back to you. Um, but I mean, I think, uh, you know, I was talking off mic, um, or maybe it was at the end of one of our, our marathon recordings. Uh, dear listener, this is at the hour mark of the Scott call and you will never hear all the shit that we talked <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> about no way. other people in the podcast community, <laughs> including ourselves, really. Um, I, you know, that you found this to be kind of a breezy watch, which is a weird thing to say when it does pretty much go over the, um, the dynamics of one relationship over decades. And it, I mean, I think it earns its sort of uh, epic romance badge. I don't, I don't know how you do this movie small. Like I just watched Magnolia. um, And I remember the funny thing. I don't remember if it's on the the DVD features or it's just a quote I've read where Paul Thomas Anderson was like, yeah, I just want to do something that I could just knock out real quick after Boogie Nights. Cause Boogie Nights, you know, there's a lot of characters (laughs) and look what happened. Uh, And there may be some argument that even from, PTA himself now that Magnolia is a little bit overwrought. I don't necessarily agree with that, but 
who am I to disagree, disagree with the guy who created the fucking thing? <laughs> it's like, maybe that was a little too much. Right. I never felt that with Benjamin Button. Like, and I think it's because you, you end up meeting these quirky characters that what I appreciate about it are, yes, like the tugboat captain is comedic relief, but. And also Jared Harris is great. Like one of my favorite working actors. So it's just, I honestly forgot he was in this cause it's been mm-hmm. so long since I've watched it. And of course, since then I've seen him in, you know, things like Mad Men and Chernobyl. Like he's done this like constant presence in these kind of great uh, pieces of, you know, pieces of fiction. Uh, and now seeing him here, like really, I talk about not subtle, talk about playing it up. Like he really goes for it here. And it's a very different part than I associate with Jared Harris. Usually it's a very buttoned down <laughs> character, very serious. And this is just like, let me tear open my shirt. Look at all these fucking tattoos. Like he just Gotta really goes Brad for Pitt it. Brad Pitt laid, it's... you know? I mean, who, who, who else will ever That's say right. they can play that role that I'm responsible for getting Brad Pitt laid on screen? Now he was, granted, he's like a four foot tall, like, you know, 80 year old man or whatever but still uh but doesn't matter with that and you know tilda swinton uh, you know with the 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 ships passing the night uh romance they have that affair all of those characters you compare this to something like because i remember this sort of criticism being lobbed against it that it's like oh it's just kind of like a more romantic or more serious forrest gump as far as like you kind of meet these quirky cast characters that come into this guy's life i feel like if you rewatch forrest gump a lot of them are one-off gags like he he uh, mm-hmm. has to go pee in front of JFK. That's it. There's nothing else that comes right. of that. It's just like we can stick that in and we can have JFK and everyone can be like, we loved him. And, oh, he's making a, a piss joke. Oh, great. Moving on to the next segment. Other than, say, like, I don't know, Lieutenant Dan or Jenny in there. Like, I'm struggling to think with okay. uh, who are the, like, quirky characters. Because I wouldn't say they're quirky. They're central figures in the film that actually get the respect of having a life. And I feel like right. Fincher does it here. The tugboat captain is hilarious, but he has this this death that actually means something to our main character. It, it informs right. his sensibilities going forward. And it's like a lot of things in real life. It's someone that actually touched him and sort of stays with him, like with his soul. You can right. keep the comedy, but you still can treat them as actual human beings, which I think is the, the difference here between this and Forrest Gump. I mean, of, yeah, of the absolutely. many differences, I, I, but <laughs> yeah, just a few, just a few differences. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a wonderful point that you brought up, and I think you can say the same about the Tilda Swinton character that she comes off as a real human being. Like this isn't just like oh, and then they had this fun little romp, mm-hmm. this little romance in the middle of all this, and that informed how he treated women and how he goes through the rest of his life. Like no, that's a, like a real empathetic relationship that the two of them have and given how quickly it happens it's kind of masterful at at the kind of script and directorial level that that feels like a complete relationship that comes to its end when it needs to um and it doesn't feel rushed um and i think it's i mean what is it like maybe 20 minutes of screen time that they have together and it feels like here's a whole relationship and i also think these sides are why why the main relationship works is because I think if you just had these two characters like throughout, you know, 70 years of their lives together, 
I think uh, it gets a little it gets a little tedious. It gets a little boring. It's like, okay, why are we just staying here? Whereas, like, they separate for a while, they come back together, and then they separate again, and they come back together finally at the end. And that's why the relationship really works because it does by the end feel like a grand romance, feel like a romance that was meant to be. Because no matter how many times they split up, they always found one another again. And and I think Venture also made a really interesting choice that as I've watched it twice now, I'm still not sure if I like it or not but i really respect the choice that he made is that he had uh kate blanchett dub the voice of mm. all of, of of that character throughout uh throughout her life whether she was five years old or 12 or 20 or in her 30s like kate blanchett was and it's her voice every time and there's there's a couple moments where you're like oh, okay this doesn't sound supernatural but i get what you're doing because i think he wants you to keep kate blanchett in your head the whole time like you have to know that that is this character and when you when it finally comes to when they're going to be together you have to associate and the same thing with like brad pitt essentially well, you know playing that role underneath makeup it's the it's same also idea. structured uh as a retelling based on memory too so i don't have a, really an issue with it stylistically mm-hmm. if it's how you always oh, that's remember a good point. the person you remember that that voice like just them younger i mean i don't you know, uh, good or bad. I don't have, you know, a love interest in my life from my childhood. So I don't really have anything to compare that to as far as if that would actually play out. So if, you know, if we have any listeners that are, you know, I don't know, you know like beyond high school sweethearts, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's memory is tricky that way that you sort of move the, the person you know that. onto those, those memories and sort of graph that on. So that, that's how I took it because I, same as you, I was like, it, it the biggest flaw is it maybe takes you out of the movie just a second because you're like, wait, is that Kate Blanchett's? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, because she's such a right. movie star, you yeah. know that yeah. voice. If it was like some unknown playing that role, I wouldn't yeah. bat an eyelash. It'd be like what I wouldn't even notice. But because Kate Blanchett has a known voice and she's been in Hollywood a long time, it would be the same thing if you did that with Brad Pitt. You're like, I. Uh, that's weird that Brad Pitt's voice is coming out of that little boy. Uh, I don't know what's going on right now, but that's a little weird. Uh, so it does throw you for a loop. But I think in terms of storytelling, I think I think it does work. Um, but speaking of Brad Pitt, can we just talk about like, holy shit, how good looking Brad Pitt is in this movie? Mm. Like when he finally is Brad Pitt, like Brad Pitt is always like one of the best looking men I've ever seen in my life, period. Stop. But in this, like this may be peak brad pitt like when he shows up on the motorcycle like he looks like a matinee idol from the 50s like it is i was going back like it kind of took my breath away as i watched it thing where it's a it's like it's set up as a classic hollywood film and so you know the 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 costumes the art direction all of that is going to look like these characters are living in a movie and maybe some people had Mm -hmm. some problems with that i i don't i mean it's a fairy tale like story anyway i mean it's it i think you have to have some yes. of that because how do you do a gritty fucking version of this i mean what is that is that fucking jack starring robin williams i mean what what is what is the version of this where it can't be somewhat fanciful and and romantic from another great director by the way oh, if, i mean the director of we, godfather believe you me if we did a francis ford coppola month i would have jack on that fucking list with jack and uh john we got to talk about john this. grisham's the rainmaker as well which is you know it's the best john uh-huh. grisham adaptation and well it's a thrill of course, of course, Mike fucking stars thriller. It's right you know, in your it's wheelhouse. Great. <laughs> That's right. Um, yes, you're you're absolutely right. They they have to really they have to work hard to make Kate Blanchett seem 
older and I'm, I mean this like slightly less attractive. Like they have to like do some movie magic yeah. to be like, all right, I guess you can see some age, but we're talking about fucking gods here, <laughs> like gods of genetics. Right. So yeah. to get across the natural aging process, Fincher has to go to his full <laughs> bag of tricks here with the digital domain. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, as always, I, you know, listen to the director's commentary and there are two things that stood out to me as being very funny because, like, it's great to listen to these and kind of hear about the behind the scenes and, you know, how they got all this working. It did help me understand why this movie fucking costs so much because you don't like because the digital effects are done so well, you don't realize how many of them there are like this basically except for maybe a five minute period in this movie. There's digital effects in every single scene. Like there's basically it's just like you have a body and then you have Brad Pitt's or Kate Blanchett's head superimposed on that body and it has to look natural. And I think probably about 90 percent of the time it really works, even now, like watching it now. Uh, but the two things that stood out is um, I love that Fincher has a good attitude about people who are trying to pick his movies apart for like mistakes because he <laughs> he and when he first gets on the tugboat, he's like, oh, by the way, that bridge doesn't exist in real life. Because it's a movie. <laughs> like, and, he, and I was like, yes, I love that. Like, I love that reaction. And also, one of the funniest lines in the movie when the tugboat captain, you know, tells, it's kind of like, I know I drink a lot, but are you looking the same as you were? And Brad Pitt turns around and says, like, well, you do drink a lot. That was actually uh, David Fincher's idea on the set. It was an ad lib because, mm. like, whatever the line was wasn't working. And then they did it. And it was like, oh, it's perfect. Works. Fantastic. And that is probably the funniest line in the movie to me. And it's great because it's like the first time you really see Brad Pitt. Um, that's when he's first starting to kind of shed the old age makeup and it finally is starting to look a little bit like him. Uh, and it's a great introduction and it shows that this character has grown, right? He's not so not fearful, but like he's not stepping back quite as much as he has been the rest of the movie. Like his personality is starting to come out just a little bit. Uh, I don't know. Maybe his personality starts to come out when he first uh, hooks up with a prostitute. Uh, that's another really funny scene because that little old man has a lot of energy. Uh, that's a really good moment. But I think that moment with Brad Pitt is really like, oh, OK, here's the movie star finally being released from the shackles of uh, old age makeup. Did it make you wish that uh, this is how we would actually age? I mean, kind of. Because that would be nice. Like you, like the maturity with which he gets to embrace uh, a youthful body, uh, and and the experience of, I mean, he him sitting in that, uh, you know, a very going way back an early version of like a retirement community uh, here, where he gets to hear all of the you know the the regrets and the triumphs of people before actually getting out there and really making too many mistakes uh that may be the mm -hmm. one well the, the the biggest downside is i guess turning into a, a baby <laughs> before becoming completely defenseless in your old age although i don't know if you get up there i don't really know how but, different that but is but this character he can't remember yeah. So, you know, um, it's fine. But yeah, that, you know, that old line that, uh, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Um, I think that that's uh -huh. that bears out here as far as even the way he deals with um, other people, like the the initial visitation to uh, New York when he goes to I, I think the character even laments like, you know, I came here to like sweep you off your feet uh, to see Kate Blanchett dance. Uh -huh. um, he 
he doesn't have the sort of um he makes a youthful mistake but he doesn't have that sort of youthful rage i feel like in most movies there would be like an argument and then they would go their separate ways and then they would right. they would make up you know through this tragedy uh, and it would have that you know my favorite podcast word that sort of icky quality to it um that's like oh you got hit by a car uh all is forgiven now because <laughs> because you've got bigger things going on right. <laughs> but i always forget how that scene plays out where he's wounded and hurt um and she seems kind of put out that he would presume to just interrupt her life uh in in that way but in that scene like you're talking about the characterization the way brad pitt plays it is he takes ownership of it it's like yeah this is i made this mistake like i'm not going to deny that i'm upset right now and it's like genuinely hurt but i'm taking ownership of causing my own pain in this sequence i can't imagine someone like going to visit like uh, you know their college sweetheart or something like in that sort of young adulthood i can't imagine that sort of response to that thing i, I could see especially coming from dave i could see a lot of cursing and finger pointing and then storming off that's that's you know that sounds yeah, about right like, i remember yeah. we did a podcast where you said there was a lot of finger pointing and i said you're gonna lose a finger one day dave like you do that <laughs> that's right still got them still got all 10 i've still made it somehow yeah, you bring it up this idea of, you know, aging and almost kind of like, wouldn't it be nice if we age that way? Because like we'd get we'd get more experience before we were young and at our physical peak. Right. So we and that, you know, and that sounds kind of nice. And there's a there's a line in here when is when his father returns um, and he has his first drink with his dad as like a 70 year old mm-hmm. man. Um and it's it's a very poignant moment because he you know he just says like there's nothing wrong with with getting old, um, and you realize as you're watching it like that's read one way by his father like oh this old man is telling me it's okay mm-hmm. to get old don't worry you'll get there someday and it's fine but really he knows that because he's watched mm-hmm. age his entire youth he's been surrounded with age and death and that is natural to him it's not it's not frightening to him. Because he's seen it all. He's talked to the guy who got, you know, hit by lightning seven times. He's talked to the opera singer. Like, he's seen them come and go. So he doesn't have this fear and shame about aging and death that the rest of the world does. And because our culture doesn't ever talk about death, ever. Like, we're so terrified of it that we just, we don't know how to deal with it. So when a loved one dies, we don't know how to deal with it either. Because we're just like, well, no one talks about it. I don't know what happens. I don't know what we do. I don't know how to process this emotionally. But he's done that work as a young child. And also, like, Pitt's performance, like, as a young child slash old man is some amazingly subtle acting. Because he's got to appear old and appear young with his facial expressions. And I think he manages it the whole time. I don't think there's a time where you are misunderstanding what age he is playing at any point during this movie. Like it, it all fits. It's a, like it's kind of masterful and not something maybe at this time I would have expected from Brad Pitt. But this is, you know, as watching it again, this may be one of my favorite Brad Pitt performances. And it may be something I go back to just to see that again. Although it is a difficult movie to just like, let me let me pop on <laughs> the curious case of Benjamin Button. But man, it is really impressive work. And you know, and obviously when you're when you're opposite Kate Blanchett, like you better be you better be on your A game because she will she'll act circles around the best in the business. 
but I think the two of them are really well matched. Like that scene where he shows up at the dance studio and her child is there and her husband is there. It's just kind of remarkable. I have no idea what to make like of this of as the husband. I'm like, what is this like 16 year old kid doing here? And it seems like he's greatly upset her. Right. Uh, and she's saying, oh, this is a family friend. And I'm thinking like, is there, was it like, is this kid's like father passed or something? Like, does she have a relationship with his dad? Like right. what's, <laughs> what's her news is he bringing? But um, yeah, as far as, you're talking about how he plays it. Yeah, there's an eagerness to the 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 young character, but the old man physical form uh, that is endearing. Because it's just not what we expect uh, to to see. Um, right. You know, maybe like the best exotic marigold hotel where they all want to like fuck. I, I mean that that's a different type of eagerness, right? I get that. <laughs> it's a, it's an eagerness to get started, and you're like. And that's what's there's a uh, it's a jarring disconnect because we're not used to seeing people that we want to see. I think the old settled, settled and accomplished, but no longer striving because it's like they're still striving or something. It's like, well, they are they desperate? Did they not get all their things done in time? Like it's a race against the clock. And to see that and read it that way, if you don't, I guess, know who Benjamin Button is, you take it that way. But since we know what he's going through, he just can't wait to be involved in life. He just can't wait to like, and he's had enough right. time to prepare for it. That would be the, the problem with losing your childhood. But, uh, it is, it's a pretty mature and hopeful movie. That is one that I uh, greatly appreciated on rewatch more so than, you know, this came out and I was in my, uh, you know, mid twenties and, you know, I was just like, oh, it was right. kind of funny. I like when he, he banged the prostitute and then he went out to see, that was a good time. And the rest of it, ah, <laughs> whatever, who needs it? Uh, now <laughs> right. I do. Now I need that, that level of comfort. And, uh, you know, as we're going along, uh, I much prefer this one as the outlier, if you want to call it that in Fincher's filmography to, to Mank. Cause I do think Mank is sweet in its own way and warm and kind to its, its characters. Um, but there's the, the hopefulness is not there in bank the like let's burn it all to the fucking ground right. and laugh about I, it I, is there but the anarchic uh spirit. yeah there's a lo- there's a lot more cynicism yeah. in in mank than in here this is kind of this movie like it's just so pure mm-hmm. it's so nice like some bad things happen of course because you have to have conflict but like at its base this is a kind loving film um, and I think, you know, you talking about that eagerness and wanting to get his life going. I think that's why the uh, the scene where he, you know, goes off with the pygmy uh, on the bus is probably the most important scene in the movie, uh, because that, I think, is where he gains that excitement and that eagerness. Because before that, he's constantly being told, well, like, well, you're probably it's essentially the Dread Pirate Roberts. Like, you most likely kill you in the morning. Like, <laughs> you're not going to make it. So, like, don't get too excited about anything. And through that conversation, he kind of learns, like, I have to grab I have to grab life by the horns and I have to do something because I might die tomorrow, but I might not. So, like, and that's why him, like you know, going on the tugboat ends up making perfect sense. Cause he's like, I just want to, I want to go, I want to see the world. I want to do something. I don't want to just stay like, it's one thing to experience age and experience death at this, at this old age home, but it's another thing to stay there. And that's all you experience. Cause eventually that's going to kind of beat you down. Like all you're seeing is the end and you're never experiencing the beginnings. Um, and so the rest of the movie feels like him trying to experience those beginnings, whether it's work, whether it's relationships, whether it's anything, he's trying to find it. And I think you get that from him kind of throughout the entire film until until the end when he loses kind of everything and needs to be taken care of 
once again. So he has this kind of kindly female figure in the beginning with Taraji P. Henson's character, and then it kind of transfers to Kate Planchette at the end. And I remember this movie not like getting a lot of shit, but like people like kind of kind of making fun of the ending, you know, with her, you know, taking care of him, and she like leans down for a kiss near the end of the movie because uh, it feels like oh she's kissing this child, and it's like. Once again, in the words of David Fincher, it's mm. a movie. Like you have to if you have to go along for the ride here, just like we talked about in Panic Room. Like you have to go with it, man. Like you have to this is a fantasy romance. Right? I'll tell you if what, you man. don't buy that he's aging backwards, I don't know what to tell you. You need to find it. It plays movie. a lot better to me than uh you know, the true Oscar bait uh fashion, uh the Cider House rules where uh, old, uh Tobey Maguire uh goes off um, to pick apples and fuck Charlize Theron, which is a you know it's a noble pursuit. It's a good gig if you can get it. Yes. Um, but you know he returns to uh, just we did this one on nine from nine nine. I remember my co-host being very Michael Caine like, where he's like, you know, this kid's got talents. He could be saving lives. He could he could be helping women in peril by uh, performing these uh, abortions that are legal and you know and helping them. And uh, instead he's going around and I'm like fucking Charlize mm-hmm. he's gonna lose that argument with me it's a good you're call gonna, you know I, yeah he made the right call <laughs> he gives you what you want in the end he returns the homestead but the, the biggest issue I always have with that movie and it's played with a little bit in Benjamin Button as far as the meeting in the middle uh, except there is no you know aging process in Cider House Rules other than the natural one so what does Toby do leaves the poor orphan girl who has a crush on him returns when she's of age and she's actually attractive to him. And it's like, okay, I had my time. Now I'll come back. You'll, you'll never <laughs> leave this, this orphanage, but I'll get mine. And I'm like, yeah, that's a, <laughs> I don't like this it's at a all. little gross. No one ever talks about that though. So th- just the princes of Maine. So that meeting in, <laughs> oh, Jesus, I'd just rather not talk about that movie at all. Well, uh, cause it I'm going to do 10 more minutes um, on it, Dave. But, I'm going to hijack this podcast. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, so that meeting in the middle is really interesting to me because I, you know, given, given Fincher's past directorial work, like he, he can be pretty cynical. He can be pretty rough. Um, and this read to me as I watched it the first time and again, cause it's been, so friggin' long since I had seen it. Like, it basically, like, was essentially a first-time watch. Because, like, I, you know, I remembered he aged backwards, and it's got these two in it, and that's kind of all I remembered from it. So, it, as the movie goes, it's kind of reading as one of those um, romances that's never going to work out. Like, they're just never, like, because, you know, they almost get together when, you know, he comes to New York, and then they, and then he tells her no, uh, which is a gutsy move, uh, from Brad Pitt's character there, because uh, uh, Kate Blanchett looks phenomenal in those scenes. Like I can't imagine saying no to that in any situation. Uh, and then she leaves, so you're kind of like, oh, maybe they'll never, this will never happen. And I love the fact that like the movie at its heart is really a romance, and they find the moment when they're both in the right place, and it, it is very hopeful in that way. That like sometimes you can separate from someone and then you can kind of come back when you're both in the right headspace. In this case, the right body, the right time for all of this to work. I was wondering if because the only thing that I could imagine kind of not working, like not, you know, like I'm not sure if I buy this. Like even if you're into the fantasy of the aging backwards is the pregnancy Uh, and Kate Blanchett just being like, no, this will work out fine. I don't know what you're talking about. We'll make it work. Does that. Does that sequence work for you? Does that 
um does that hit as realistic or are you kind of like uh would anybody make this choice or is that just love Hmm. is that just like we we make strange choices when we fall for people i didn't really have an issue with it even though i hate children with a passion so um i mean i feel like it would be denying him um a part of life that everyone else for the most part has that opportunity Mm -hmm. if they want to to you know leave something behind in this case a human being that that can kind of carry on your your name your story what have you um i mean it's probably the one time he's he's not looking forward to actively participating in life in that regard like like everyone else um not that you know i I think it just depends on how how swept up in the romance are you going to be? Because probably back then when I first watched mm-hmm. this, I think I was totally on his side as far as like, mm, I don't know. Like, cause that's, th- there is a ticking clock here where I, I'm suddenly going to become a peer to my, you know, son or daughter, or whatever, whatever we have. And there's no, like, there's no explaining this. There's no, you know, you could do some, some damage to the, the child to ask them to, to have to deal with this as they're maturing and coming into adolescence that their father is de-aging. And to the mother, like, you know, like he says, yeah. you have to take care but of she's, both she's of us. She's making that two choice children. and whereas your, your kid is not. Um, so I, right. true. And even it's, it's interesting. Like, cause I, I think my biggest criticism of it when it releases, I didn't really like the, uh, the structure being told from Kate Blanchett on her deathbed uh the katrina aspect of it i think it was still like it was way too close then it's a very strange choice i didn't have choice. as much of an issue with yeah. it now because now i look back at it and i'm like oh that's of course that's extremely historically significant and it did its you know the rest of the film is kind of structured as far as like i was born the night the war ended and all this at the time though it felt it felt way too close to the the events that actually happened um I, you know i but now I don't have as much of an issue with it because I feel like that's it. It answers some of the questions you would have if you're treating this as if it's a, a real thing. When would you tell the daughter, and how would you do it? And you know, sneaky Blanchette's like, oh, deathbed. Pick up that book over there. Pick up that journal. <laughs> just read it to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I just you know I'm curious of what's in there. You know, could be anything. <laughs> Yeah. At least the character does say, this is how you're telling me. <laughs> like she says what you would want the character yeah. to say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the last thing I want to talk about, like before we kind of wrap this up, is I was wondering what you thought about the framing device that they use. Not necessarily the like the book and the, the journal and all that, but the Elias Cotius, mm. like the, the, the backwards mm-hmm. clock, all that stuff. Because I think that's something also other people some people had kind of a negative mm. reaction to. So do you feel like that's like kind of superfluous and not necessary no, no, no. or does that? No. Cause I think uh, most people in their lives, you know, when they're, when they're reflecting back, they get stuck, they get stuck at some point and they can't get past it. Not, not saying that this man who lost his son in the war doesn't have a pretty damn good reason to always be hung up right. on that particular point in his life. And if you could go back uh, I think it's, uh, you know, I don't care as much as far as like, is that the origin of the reason of of this, our main character's particular affliction? If you fantasy, it doesn't matter. I don't matter. care about that. <laughs> I just felt it was more of a counterpoint to um, a philosophy of how to go through life uh, where he never allows himself to get hung up too much. Like, 
like I said, that scene where they, they have the difficulties trying to reconnect with this, this girl that in his journal, like he's loved since he laid eyes on her, like when they're physically at two different ends of their, their respective lives. Um, he doesn't get trapped or stuck. He sort of takes life as it comes to him. And he, because of what you're saying, where the way he was brought up, he's not afraid of death. And he knows that's a natural, there's a natural end point for people. So I just felt like it was counter to not embracing tragedy. Um, because that's, you know, if it, like that sequence where he tells this woman he loves, it's like, hey, you're only going to have a few more years dancing anyway. The one way to look at it is that you accomplish something that people have a very small window to, to get to. And most don't ever do that. And you, you were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just feel like that's the character throughout his whole life is that he was going to embrace it, uh, mm-hmm. good or bad. And, uh, and most of us cannot, most of us, like we do get trapped and we, we, we get to a point where we do. It's not like, I don't think if you, Dave, if you know a lot of people where it's like, they've lost hope, like that, they're just like completely non-functioning as far as life. But that thrill of it, the the uh, the eagerness that we see uh-huh. in his character, they've lost a step, you know, <laughs> like like we right. have in this podcast. You know, people can go back to like the Verhoeven month, and they're like, "That's it, that was where the eagerness was gone." Mike was eager to talk. the peak, the peak. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, no, I I mean, I think I think it's a great point that. You know, it's become a cliche when you talk about, you know, oh, you got to take the sour with the sweet and all, you know. It was said to me on a recent experience Sober the... Cinema episode by my fucking co-host, and I lost was. my that's, mind about it. That's that's <laughs> why it was in my head. I just listened to that episode. Um, so I think it's rare that we have a character this genuine that embraces all of it. That embraces that isn't the tragedy annoying with the too. triumph. That doesn't actively get on your nerves yeah. with that sort and, of optimism. And I think a lot of it is because he's, it's such an accepting performance. Like we talked about this kind of just sitting back and listening and experiencing life and kind of slowly building towards actual human experiences. Um, so when when that happens, you're like, yeah, I believe it from this character. Whereas another character in another movie would be like, well, it's fine. That person got in a terrible accident and their career is over. You'd be like, fuck you, no dude. Uh, but... How dare you say that in this moment? <laughs> right. Jesus. Like maybe, maybe let her recover a little bit before you say shit like that. Ooh, that's a little rough. Uh, but in this with Benjamin, it works. It absolutely works. Um, and I am genuinely so glad that I got to, that I had an excuse to watch this again. Cause who knows when I would have rewatched this. Like this could have been another decade before I like, well, I'm going to, Give that another try because there's, you know, a million movies I haven't seen and there's a bunch of other Fincher movies that I know I just absolutely love. So like and it's three hours long. So like maybe I wouldn't have gone back to this. But like it was like you had mentioned, we had kind of talked about how this was like a really easy watch for me. Um, And I was very surprised by that because of the kind of Oscar bait stuff, you expect it to be like, you know, the the old Seinfeld joke of the English patient. Like, oh, okay, Just here we go. die. Got to get into this die. now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A movie I still have not seen, by the way, uh, shockingly. So fine. someday I will have to, I'll have to fix that. It's fine. Okay, Elaine, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> All right. So um, we're almost there with Venture. I think we've got three movies left, two episodes. Um, and the next movie is, at this point, I guess, like, even though it's recent, kind of a certified classic, a certified masterpiece uh, in the social network, uh, a movie that 
I think everyone thought they would hate and then everyone pretty much loved. Um, so that'll be, and we'll have the return of, a uh, of Trent Reznor as a, uh, as a writer of a score. So we'll get to talk about that a little bit more. Um, so, uh, until our next episode, you can follow us on Twitter at DirectedByPod, or you can donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash a podcast directed.